0: For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I'm Colin Marshall coming to you from Larb HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, sitting down today with Mark Marin, comedian, podcaster, writer, conversationalist, now television star. You'll know him from his comedy and his podcast, WTF, but also his new show on the independent film channel, Marin, and his new book, Attempting Normal. Mark, in this book, there's a theme that comes up so many times, and I've got to call this out first. It's the theme of... Self-avoidance, what to you does it mean to avoid yourself?
1: Well, there's a lot of things you can do to keep yourself distracted, certainly. I mean, uh, avoiding yourself also requires some work and effort and uh, focus. Uh, But in terms of whatever you're doing to relieve whatever your anxiety or particular fear or pain or mental processes is, Mm -hmm. that's sort of what I would call uh, avoiding yourself. Mm -hmm. There's a way of processing feelings that don't require... Uh, the eating of ice cream or the sexualizing of things or the, uh, you know, whatever you're compulsively or obsessively involved with that's some sort of way of uh, self-medicating.
0: What do you think of as as a classic self-avoidance mechanism for yourself or for anybody else? What do you, what do you think of when you think of how to get away from yourself, how people do it?
1: Well, I always do it. Uh, Most of them can cause shame. Mm. Which is always fun. So then you have to, you know, once you get done avoiding yourself, you can feel ashamed for yourself and then beat yourself up about it. You know, so it's, it becomes a circle. A lot of things. I mean, you can eat your feelings. You can, you know, sex away your feelings. You can, um, uh, you know, I tend to drink a lot of coffee or, or, you know, even, uh, you know, I think some feelings happen that, that aren't really feelings or they're, they're actually masking feelings, you know, raging or, or, um, or just, uh, um you know even you know watching television certain types of reading i mean there's a lot of ways to do it you know i'm pretty good at distracting myself
0: a lot of the text here in the book is is about your own self-distraction self-avoidance but i mean this is no one has ever escaped that right we're all doing it
1: i think so you know it's not really my specialty and i'm not a psychotherapist but i think that you know what i'm recognizing in the book is that oddly even with all my self-avoiding that you know i'm completely Consumed with myself, <laughs> and uh, so the action of self-avoiding becomes sort of a, a, a narrative. But I don't, I don't know. I think I don't, th- and no one's ever really come at me with that angle before. But I think that using other people is another way mm. we can avoid ourselves. But you know everything they, is a possible tool for self-avoidance. Well, I think so. But I think there's something about you know there there are good things. You know, it, being selfless if possible is is a good thing, and and sometimes. Um, uh, self avoidance you know it could be very beneficial but i I just think that what what more of the book is about is why do I feel aggravated incomplete you know why are, what are these compulsions and these journeys to sort of complete myself uh, I think is more the the journey I think that self avoidance you know once you call that what it is, you know you can sort of take steps to to be more aware and stop it, but feeling like you don 't feel whole. I don't know. I I think that you might do the similar things, but it's not for the same reason.
0: Doing your podcast as well as writing a book like this, do you consider both of those things, I mean, I think of them as you starkly looking yourself in the eye. Do you think of both projects in those media or anything you do in any medium as that?
1: Well, I think there's a certain level of honesty that people avoid probably for for a good reason mm-hmm. you know publicly is that you know they can cause you pain they can cause others pain mm-hmm. they they can make you vulnerable mm-hmm. so I think that the attempt in 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 you know, sort of picking through my past and and picking through uh, my family a little bit I think I was always on a quest for you know authenticity for you know being true to myself and figuring out what that was, so I think a book the book is really about confronting certain certain things that i 've done mm-hmm. if you 're honest on the page and you 're honest with your listeners, it kind of pushes you out there you 're sort of giving yourself no choice mm-hmm. uh, but to be seen mm-hmm. and I think a lot of my journey has been to to sort of you know say I'm here and that I you know I I'm doing this thing and I want you to like it or I don't or I want you to at least have a reaction to it mm. it's just pushing myself out into the world pushing myself you know out of my head mm. and and into life and I you know self avoidance uh, you know getting back to that I guess it, you know I'm trying to figure out in my mind you know when you bring that up now Cause I don't know how many, how much of the book is really about that as it, as it is about sort of trying to, you know, push myself out into mm. the world and also, you know, saying and doing things that are bad and, and stupid and, you know, and hurt people. Uh, these are the realities of life. I mean, you can't pretend that you're not guilty of it. So I think that, you know, putting it out there, it's got its liabilities, but I, I think that's always ever looking for is, is to sort of be, uh, you know, fully me. Mm. And, uh, and the way I do it, it, you know, I I don't recommend it, you know, to anybody, but, but it's certainly raw, but I I don't like, um, and obviously we can't avoid some sort of, um, what would you call it that, you know, you can't, you can't be a hundred percent, you know, you can't walk around like an open wound. And I know that, but you have to do that for a little while to at least know how to, you know, what you're trying to, uh, you know, keep in and, and how to sort of regulate how you are and behave in the world. Mm.
0: This phrase he used, this notion of not giving yourself a choice. That is a line. It was one of my favorite lines I've heard on your podcast, WTF, a conversation with Conan O'Brien, where he says, you ask him how he achieved what he has. He says, I didn't give myself a choice. You call that line out in your book as well. Um, what does, how do you interpret that line? Not giving yourself a choice. Well,
1: look, you know, fear is going to drive people a lot of uh, a lot of different directions, uh, usually away from something. I mean, usually I think that fear, either you're going to fight or you're going to flight. <laughs> so, <laughs> y- you know, and I think that's another way of fighting. Mm. Uh, you know, it's how I do most of my writing on stage is that you sort of corner yourself. Mm. Uh, even when I started the podcast, you know, everything it had uh had broken down on me and I didn't have many possibilities. So it was either fight or flight and flight being, you know, end your own life or whatever the hell it's going to be. But I think that not giving yourself a choice is not always a choice. Mm -hmm. I think that you find yourself in certain life situations where, you know, either you're just going to fall into yourself and feel sorry for yourself or, or kind of just fade away um, emotionally Mm -hmm. or or psychologically, or you're just going to find the will within you to, to kind of keep, pushing forward Mm. and i think that's really what he's saying is that you you know there there is no other way you know when you get to a certain age there's no plan b's anymore Mm. you know there's no sort of like well i could always what what could you always do what you know what are your options who do you think you are you're not in college you're not prepared Mm. to do anything you don't have many choices
0: Mm. was there ever a plan b really no no
1: i mean you know you sort of like i i think i'm a smart guy i think i probably could have pursued uh you know, some sort of teaching degree or perhaps, you know, gone to more school or, or took it seriously. You can always look people change their lives all the time, you know, and, and certainly what I'm, I'm saying is sort of dramatic, uh, but that's, that's how I am. You know, there, there, there's a drama to it. It's like, what else will I do? Well, I mean, if you have to survive, you'll figure something out, but do you just want to do something to survive? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fortunately I don't, I, I've, whatever the fight I've fought and there's been a lot of difficult times, Um, but you know, I, I've just pushed on with, with whatever it is that I do. There was never really a plan B. I mean, if if there was, it was always something, you know, mundane, you know, like, like cooking in a restaurant or something.
0: Mm. (laughs) People reading your book will learn the origin story of your podcast, WTF. It it sounds like the moment you created the podcast was your bleakest point. Would you, would you say literally that it sounds that way, but it would, would you commit to that was the bleakest time I've ever had?
1: Certainly. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the, starting with the the um crumbling of the marriage and on into the sort of reality of that that you know certain things happen in your life where you you can't really hide or pretend or sort of remain committed to the delusion that you you're 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 honoring uh because something doesn't work out you know you you have these moments in life when you realize you know i don't have any control over anything and And, you know, whatever I'm hanging on to might, you know, might be uh, ridiculous. So, you know, when the marriage, when she left, you know, then I was left with this. I I had no idea that was going to happen. And I was, you know, shattered and uh, just didn't ever think that that would happen. It's ridiculous. You know, why wouldn't you think that? But when it becomes a reality and when you get brokenhearted, you know, you're in sort of a different world. Your perception of life becomes very, you know, sort of dark and cynical. And Mm -hmm. I was already cynical, which is one of the reasons why I think the marriage ended. But (laughs) so then when you're humbled like that, you know, you're, you're, it's, that's a very vulnerable place and you realize like, well, who is going to help me? You know, there, there's those moments where. you you need help. You wonder, you know, why going to have to help myself? I mean, your parents aren't going to come pick you up,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, that, that that's over. Uh, and yeah, it was bleak because I had to acknowledge that my career was not really going anywhere Mm -hmm. and that, you know, my marriage was over and that, you know, what I wanted to do my whole life and what I had been doing was okay. I'm still doing it, but, Mm -hmm. Having been in comedy a long time, I see people fall away or, or disappear mm-hmm. or, or, or get their spirit broken. Mm-hmm. So, in that way, it was the darkest time. And, and, you know, the choice to just try this thing without any expectation, just knowing, like, well, this seems, you know, guys are doing this podcast thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, my buddy who, uh, who was uh, the original producer of the show was, you know, I said, well, can you figure it out? You know, I know I can talk. Can you figure out the rest of this? You know, put it up and, you know, what do we got to do? And that was really it. You know, I I knew I wanted to stay vital on some level and and continue putting myself out there, but I didn't have any expectation or plan. But yeah, it did, it was birthed out of complete desperation and and just the desire to continue working somehow Mm -hmm. and not disappearing
0: before WTF the podcast and before the the Mark Maron Renaissance, you know I, I think to myself you know about the the shape of your career in comedy and it seems to me that in the eighties or nineties I mean there were a lot of mediocre comics who sort of took the slant I'm honest and I'm gonna bitch and moan and they you got unfairly lumped in with them in some part of the zeitgeist of the the comics that didn't have much but complaining they said oh Mark Maron he's complaining right mm-hmm. you know and you just got Put there with those guys who went, who didn't go anywhere. Do you do you think that's at all accurate? My view of that. Well, I'm
1: not sure w- what you're referring to, but I mean, alternative comedy was see- was seen as somewhat self indulgent. Oh. Uh, you know, in terms of complaining. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's an argument to be made that most point of view comics are complaining. Mm. Really, I mean, self deprecation and complaining are relatively similar important line though i would, would would you wouldn't you say i don't know i mean i I don't know who a complainer is i mean is lewis black a complainer is you know richard lewis a complainer oh. was george carlin complaining uh. is louis complaining i i don't know what's the line
0: there's higher complaining and there's lower complaining but it's all
1: complaining <laughs> so you, you know but you know the the idea of complaint yes. or of you know or of righteous anger Mm. or of like, you know, isn't life tough, Mm. whatever it is. I mean, that the underdog as a, you know, comedic archetype is well established. So I think that, you know, if anything, I was lumped in with alternative comedy early on and, and that seemed very nebulous to people, but Mm. yeah, I was always a, you know, a club comic and, you know, an alternative comedy in the eighties or actually the nineties is when it really started to happen. Um, was really for me just another outlet, you know, and now you know, sort of a, a world has been built around that, where you know, non-traditional venues, uh, you know, are places to do comedy now. I mean, yeah, it's a longer discussion that's not necessary, but the um, the idea. I think I was angry, uh, and I think that you know, I was sort of anger-driven, you know, somewhat political, but but also a bit a bit shocking. Uh, I think I come from a tradition at that time of. Of, of what I would thought was you know, aggressive social satire or mm-hmm. sort of a sort of swaggering anger that was never mainstream and never really for everybody. There's very few guys that do that well or do it in, in a way that sustains them. And there's a lot of people that are uh, cranky. Yeah, Cranky's much different.
0: Yes, that's true.
1: Um, there's many shades here to yeah, name. Sure, yeah. But, you know, the crank is a great is a great comedic persona, and there's very few guys that do that well. It's a natural disposition. Uh, I, I think I've been called cantankerous, <laughs> you know, which is a broader cranky. I think cantankerous leaves room for, you know, off-putting. Uh <laughs> And as I get older, you know, I, I think I'm fortunate in that somehow or another, I'm almost 50, yet I have, you know, just now started to build an audience of, you know, a very wide variety of ages of people. You know, so I, I do get a certain amount of, of respect as, you know, perhaps a, an old professorial type or mm-hmm. a, a kind of wacky, uh, aggravated uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which is good. You know, I mean, it's no easy game to, to sort of come into who you are at 49 years old and start, you know, finally, you know, being relevant to people.
0: What is the sort of thing you've always been angry about from the beginning till now? What have been the consistent points of anger? Well, I I think I, I
1: naturally lash out to people, you know, at things that, you know, seem to, uh, Present themselves as a truth or as like like just in general, you know, well-adjusted people bother me. Um,
0: What's a a well-adjusted person?
1: Somebody who you know kind of moves through life uh, as if they have you know no struggles or problems. Mm -hmm. You know, there's part of me that's sort of like, oh, there's got to be one in there. I want to rile that guy up. Uh, authority bothers me, mm-hmm. but usually I'm just aggravated because I have a certain amount of impatience, and I and I usually feel overwhelmed. And I think a lot of which one of the reasons why I stopped doing, you know, political punditry, or you know, I was on a you know I was a a, a lefty talk show host for a couple of years, and I I think I served my time in fighting the good fight. But I found that, you know, over, you know, two years of being engaged in politics and, you know, I was always a reactionary as a younger person. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I postured without really knowing, uh, the nuances of, of even how, you know, legislation works, let alone, you know, how politics really work. So I got a real education in that when I did time at air America. And I, and I think that, you know, just that tone that my, you know, righteous anger when sort of fueled properly, you know provided a lot of people a lot of relief in a fairly dark time for our country, mm-hmm. uh, especially for people on the left. So you know I still have a lot of fans from that time who were like, you know you really helped us out during the bush years because it was a scary time. I was in a red state, I had young know, relatives you know I didn't know we knew what was truth or wasn't truth and and even though when I did political talk radio i I talked a lot about my cats and food and yes, other too. problems uh you know i it was you know I was driving a show. That, you know, that's mind was in, and heart was in the right place mm-hmm. ideologically for what we were doing. And we did a lot of original comedy. And I think we provide a lot of relief. But when I got done with that, I realized, you know, when I started the podcast that the, I didn't want to continue in politics because it wasn't my passion. I'd become disillusioned when you really get the, you know, when you really sort of tap into and educate yourself uh, as to how politics works and who the players are and why mm-hmm. it's, not, it's very easy to, uh, to feel, uh, disheartened mm-hmm. and, and disillusioned by both sides mm-hmm. and by the system in general. And, you know, I just couldn't commit my life to that fight, uh, because I had deeper problems. So that meant that I had to go into existential anger, mm-hmm. uh, or existential, uh, aggravation, mm-hmm. which is where the podcast sort of started. I made it a very, I, I really wanted all the podcasts, Uh, To not be hinged to pop culture or hinged to politics, but hinged to, you know, uh, emotion uh, and just, you know, basic anxiety, fear and anger. And I found that, you know, as time went on and I talked to more people that, you know, I, I was angry. You know, for fairly basic psychological reasons, uh, you, you know, I had anxiety and, you know, I, I felt a little jilted by the way I was brought up and I was emotionally crippled in certain ways in, in relationships. And, and, you know, I can track those things, but I, I just found that there was a lot to resolve uh, within me. And I was, you know, I could use politics as a template to sort of push anger through, you know, I could like, my anger was adaptable. It's like, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've got the engine going points anywhere. Sure. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, how do you control that? How do you, you know, get some distance from it? How do you, uh, you know, stop it. Mm. Some of it
0: Mm. talking on stage, talking on the radio, on air America, then talking on a podcast, making all your own choices. What was the feeling of talking in that third new way when you began?
1: Well, I mean, at Air America, I was always up against the agenda of the network in the way that I felt that, you know, comedy can't be that partisan. And, you know, we have to, in order to do effective satire, it sort of has to, you know, you you have to transgress. Mm. And also my own life and struggles became essential to me because I just got bored with politics, you know, that, you know, when you do daily talk. With politics, you know, you're in a narrative and the narrative is decided upon. There's not a lot of new thinking going on. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reacting to whatever the the narratives are Mm -hmm. of of the administration or to whatever story you're following. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't enough about me. (laughs) And also, you know, so you had the ideology and and, and we were up against an organization there that didn't think we were doing it right. We were doing a lot of irreverent humor, a lot of great stuff, a lot of great radio theater. You know, we worked very hard with a lot of geniuses uh, over there on my show on Morning Sedition. And, you know, it changed. uh, You know, there was nothing quite like it. Uh, you know I still have all that material i don 't know what to do with that, but the shift from taking the mic on my own you know as a broadcaster, which you know i 'm very green at that i you know i don 't consider myself a radio veteran, but I did know that my that my personality m- worked there i mean it, it worked on those kind of mics, so then I had to figure out how to sort of man a mic on my own. There was a few times at Air America where I'd had to host shows, but still you 're moving towards breaks mm-hmm. you know every segment 's not going to be more than eleven or twelve minutes. And uh, you sort of kind of compartmentalize like that, mm-hmm. uh, so it's sort of an illusion. You're not really talking for three hours, mm-hmm. you're, and you sort of ride it out. But once I learned how to talk out to nothing, uh, you know, just by myself, mm-hmm. that was a tremendous breakthrough. It's like when you figure out how to get that third ball in the air when you when you're trying to juggle, or or when you figure something out. And there's a freedom to that. So, and also, I'm not. I, I don't have to answer to anybody. So that's different.
0: Mm-hmm. When did conversation become important to your podcasting life? I and mean, when, when did conversation become essential to it? You, people think of WTF as about conversation, about one-on-one conversation, usually comedian on comedian. Tell me how that became the core.
1: Well, I think that, you know, unbeknownst to me until until I really thought about it, that I had really alienated myself from from comics, from my community in a way, from people i 'd gotten to a point of cynicism that was a little unbearable. I was a bit bitter a bit self pitying and and sort of you know too intense to really uh, have those emotions publicly because uh, you know it 's like an inverted charisma you, you become sort of <laughs> a, a, a a negative force that people kind of deal with if, if they respect you enough or they're, they're close enough to you or like-minded. And that's not always a great thing. You don't want a bunch of like-minded negative people just sitting there like some sort of energy vortex. yeah um, But I think, you know, right at the beginning, I knew that I had to reach out to my community and to other comics to to not only get content, but also to, to sort of connect with something I understood and knew. Uh-huh. And I think over the process of it, you know, early on, that what really became... You know what WTF or the podcast was known for was that you know this interviewer me, I never saw them as interviews and I, you know, I rarely prepare questions. You know, I just need to talk about myself to famous people, I guess. <laughs> so I always brought a lot of my own garbage and and my own sort of. Uh, issues to the to the forefront within conversation. So I think I was really looking for help. So I, I think the tone of the WTF really sort of was about me saying like, you know, this happens to me. I mean, do you get this? Mm-hmm. Is this happening to you? Have you been through this thing? Mm-hmm. And and sort of like reengaging with humans and reengaging with my peers and also learning how to listen again and, and have emotions about someone else's story and laugh at things. I, I I'd really forgotten how to just like, you know, uh, open my heart and, you know, take someone else in and provide, you know, a, 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 an empathetic ear. And, and also just like getting entertained by all these, you know, great entertainers and like that was what got me into comedy in the first place when I was a kid. Just you know, wow, these guys are great. I love laughing and and all that sort of started to come back, you know. But I think it was really about the the essence of conversation, the essence of spending an hour talking to somebody else's. It's really a, it's it's a, it's a service. It's a it's a way that you know people help each other. It's a way that we
0: know we're all human.
1: It's a beautiful thing. Mm.
0: There's a sense in which, I mean, just as a listener to shows yourself, any kind of show, you don't want to hear an interviewer from on high pretending that they know everything Mm. and, you know, deigning to ask certain questions about a guest's work. I mean, you want to hear an interviewer who is a human being, right? Mm. You want to hear them bring their shit to the table, right? I guess. I don't know. You know, I mean... Don't don't you? I'm just... You, you specifically, when you listen to something, you want to hear that, right?
1: I don't know. You know, I, I you know I don't know what I respond to. I, I certainly like to be moved. Um, you know, when I think about interviewers, uh, who are they? I mean, who are we talking about? I mean... Who do you listen to? I, you know, uh, I used to listen to Brian Lehrer, you know, at WNYC, you, you know, uh, I'd listen to Leonard Lopate in New York, but he was annoying and kind of <laughs> high-minded <laughs> Yeah, really annoying you yeah. know oh, to dear. you know i don't know if you know him but
0: heard a little bit
1: yeah uh but you know uh you know but like the people on television you know i like letterman mm-hmm. but you you know you, those for that type of interview you know to do short form and to just sort of do produce segments where the, the agenda is to get laughs i mean that's a whole other skill set mm-hmm. you know and, and letterman's really the best at it and you know but then you know when you build a relationship with a broadcaster you know i grew up with letterman and he was my guy and you know as he got older there was vulnerabilities and but usually it's a surprise when you can identify you know genuine moments Mm. i mean he's got great timing and he's hilarious but you know you know after his heart surgery and certain things went on with him there was a a vulnerability that started to surface that i found very compelling and and endearing and you know and, and it was it was great that he was sort of owning it and, yeah, you know, but in terms of long form interviews, I mean, you know, Charlie Rose does what he does. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's okay. I can't remember really anything. You know, I don't sit and watch him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's still, a, that's an information based uh, podcast or not podcast, but, uh, but interview show. And, you know, I watched some of the Dick Cavett stuff and he was great, but he was great because he was soft spoken and, and sort of had the, uh, the wherewithal and the courage to let moments sit awkwardly if necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, Conan is very, you know, high strung with that short form. And there's not a lot of people that do long form. I mean, Terry Gross is obviously very good, but she volunteers nothing of herself. Right. Uh, but she has a tone and a, a sort of tenacity that's very um, compelling and, and 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 charming and uh, and uh, coaxing. Um, you know, it was in a Studs Terkel, and that was great. Studs was, you know, kind of, he, he kind of had a kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of not gruff, but, you know, a... Uh, every guy disposition in a way and mm. and kind of went at things as a as a guy who was just curious about something mm. and you know but also reverent or you know reverential is that the word uh you know you could tell that he, he adored the people he was talking to a lot of times but you know he was just like getting in it to with, with somebody and nice. and that I, I but i didn't look to anybody for inspiration i didn't you know i didn't have a a mindset i i just saw it as like you know i i, I like to talk you know let's let's talk to some
0: people Before the advent of long-form podcasting, it seems to me the world outside of comedians, I mean, they didn't know comedians. People didn't know comics. They knew what they did. No one knew anything about comics, really, right?
1: I guess. I mean, you know, there were certain public personalities uh, that they they didn't know them in the way necessarily that you know, uh, was in, in control of the comic himself. I mean, you know, once comics started to break down or, you know, we, after, you know, Richard Pryor set himself on fire, uh, you know, and after sort of, um, you know, Lenny Bruce, you know, died of a drug overdose and, you know, people started to become more, uh, acquainted with the idea that, you know, comics were not always funny or that had, you know, I mean, I think that's been a common, probably cultural misgiving uh, for years that, you know, the sad clown, the Pagliacci that, you know, and I even bought into it. It's like, you know, all the, the best comedy comes from misery. And and I don't know if that's exactly true uh, anymore, but, um, but yeah, I mean, but show business in general, you know, the, the, the underbelly or the other side of show business, uh, just dealing with, you know, these people as people. uh, I think the, the advent of that becoming more known had to do with, you know like entertainment news and you know just this sort of um expanding of tabloid culture uh but now i I think it's different I think that with social networking and the amazing accessibility that almost everybody has to almost everybody yeah. uh you know it, it, it's you find yourself putting yourself out there in a lot of different ways um but I don't know. My, my belief was when I started that, you know, comics, you know, if they're like me, you know, we made a tremendous sacrifice, uh, and, and it took a tremendous risk with our lives to, to sit around and try to look at the world and, and take things in and, you know, frame them in a way that people, uh, laugh at, but also sort of, uh, gives them a, a new point of view on something. So the, you know, the comics, for the most part, are, you know, are their thinkers. They're, they're people that, you know, have a lot of time. To think about things and 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 get an angle on them, and there's very few things they they can't speak to.
0: And, and the podcast specifically, I mean, that, it's a part of this book. The podcasting is a part of this book. It's a part of the sh- television show as well. We see you podcasting on the show. Is there a sense in which podcasting allowed you to write this book? The, what the conversations you had allowed you to write what's in attempting normal? well, well, well I. Um... I mean the, the, when I pitched the book,
1: it, it allowed me in, in, in the sense, n- not emotionally or creatively, but but certainly opportunistically.
0: Oh I see the, the, the notoriety from the podcast made this a stronger pitch.
1: Yeah okay. yeah I mean the pitch was the pitch. You know the, when I pitched the book, the podcast was not that relevant ah. uh, necessarily. you know it was around, but podcasting in general was still you know it had not blown up. Uh, in the way that it did. But, you know, when I started the podcast, one of the other things I did to try to get something going was, uh, you know, pitch a, a an idea of a collection of memoirs to my literary agent who I hadn't talked to in years. Cause I did write a book in 2000 and what, 2001, uh, I had a book come out and, um, but that was, you know, I, I got that because an editor had seen a one man show I did but you know the dynamics of what was happening so the book pitch was really put in place before the podcast it really took took a hold but you know we did drop the pitch on publishers you know the same day or the day after a new york times piece was uh, published on me in the wow. podcast so you know there was a tension that was just you know you know kind of a pretty good calculation oh. <laughs> on behalf of whoever. I mean, maybe yeah, I don't want to take full credit for it, but you know things sort of synced up. There was a mm-hmm. synchronicity happening. Yeah, a timing was happening that had never really happened in my life. Things were sort of falling into place. Mm-hmm. But the writing of the book, I think, um, you know, I, I I like to write, and I, and I do think that I have a voice on the page. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't really like writing that much, oh. <laughs> unless I have to. Yes. And I had to, you know, I had no real intention of doing another book. But when I got the deal, I was like, well, now I got a deadline and that's hanging over me. So let's do some writing. Mm-hmm. And the some of this stuff in here, I have a, uh, an obsessive fan who, you know, transcribes all of my monologues. So, you know, there were thousands of pages of me talking about almost every aspect of my life that I was able to use as sort of a, an encyclopedia. So like the book is really not about podcasting other than a few chapters about my life now. Mm-hmm. But you know, the book is about marriage. It's about you know, it's about um, uh, you know, relationships with my family. It's about guitar playing. It's about dogs. It's about buying pants. It's about you, you know. But my point of view is certainly all the way through it, right. and that the fact that I have that point of view is uh, 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 I'm very um, happy that I've arrived at a point of view.
0: It's about stealing from Whole Foods too. Yeah. How did you arrive at that act of civil disobedience?
1: That was actually the very first podcast that I you know, I was just in Whole Foods and I, I have a resentment against them because I think they're overpriced and I think there there's some part of me that thinks that, you know, good food should be available to everybody at a reasonable price. And also that that one in Union Square it's always got these horrible lines and you know, you know your register's up when a color changes and it's just a very kind of mechanized, rodent like feeling to it and I and I was just had that stevia in my hand and I just didn't have the patience and it was overpriced. You know, they didn't have it at Trader Joe's, uh-huh. where I would go there. And I was just looking at the lines. I was looking at the stevia, and I knew how I felt about Whole Foods. And I'm like, I'm going to steal this, mm-hmm. and and I think I I think that's okay. And, and I think it's a statement, you know that you know that it yeah. was. A, you know, I think it was a rationalization ultimately. But I did walk out with it. But I walked out holding it literally in front of me, mm-hmm. uh, so I could nothing
0: sneaky about this. That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm just taking this, right. and no one stopped me. So I was like, yeah. Screw you, Whole Foods! I won this round, and I, you know, I, and uh, yeah, I think a few people do that.
0: It's one of those moments that tells you people could be getting away with more. Where where society is is in some sense, I mean, you don't like the way society manifests itself in Whole Foods, but it's functioning, I guess. If you can do that, and there's not a million safeguards in place against that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, but you know that that way of thinking is is sort of. Anarchist, and also, uh, you know, that's why there are laws. Right. You know, you know. I I mean, I knew I was doing something wrong. It's not right to steal, mm-hmm. but there is something about, you know, I just thought Whole Foods had it coming, <laughs> and you know, and I think that you know, civil dif- disobedience in a broader sense, not in you know, in stealing from private businesses, is necessary mm-hmm. uh, in order to change things. I don't know that I was specifically thinking that my actions were going to change anything. I was just you know stealing something right. you know from a company that. You know, I've got problems with, uh, but I think in court it would be hard to frame that as a, an act of civil disobedience that that had some social momentum behind
0: it. You I, slap you on I, the wrist, that's fine.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I'm willing to make up for it. You know, I was willing to pay for it all the way out to the door, right. but no one stopped me. <laughs> but yeah, shoplifting, I'm sure you know, uh, functions in that way. Uh, in a, you know, no matter what it is, but it's still shoplifting, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's against the law. And you know, thank God, even with the book and the podcast, I have not been arrested for my stealing of a nine dollar thing of stevia um and i'm not even saying that i really
0: did it no true, true. <laughs> and whether, whether or not you like or dislike writing for the page not writing material just writing text what what does doing that afford you that that speaking doesn't that podcasting doesn't i mean writing a book or an article must Engage some part of you; nothing else does. Yeah, time to think,
1: mm. and time to process your feelings in a different way. Mm. It's much more compartmentalized. It's much more controlled. You know, I mean, sure, you can write a script and do it, and you can read in front of people. But you know, uh, you can. But you know, when you improvise uh, comedically or, or just live in the moment of a performance, um, it's much different. You know, when you when you write things, the mathematics of it you know, there's a, like with anything else that I do, um, creatively, there's a, there's, um, there's an act of discovery. So, you know, when you start writing a piece and then all of a sudden, you know, that next piece falls, that next sentence comes to you, that next thought, and then you put it next to the first thought and then you kind of run with things. There's, there's an exciting, uh, process of discovery with writing Mm -hmm. and then not, you know, unlike, just talking or performing, you know, with writing, you can sit there and look at it and then rewrite it and then cut and paste and then throw it away and then, you know, say this sucks. And yeah, you know, there's a, you know, your, your engagement with the text, uh, can take as long as you want.
0: You have, in other words, more control over everything when you're writing a book. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's the theme of this book is, is how much control you, you allow yourself or assume on the, on your own part, right? I mean, control one of the main themes here, no?
1: I don't know. You know, I mean, un, not unlike your observation about self-avoidance, um, I'm not sure that the themes of control uh, were something I was thinking about. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to flesh that out a little bit, I'll, 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 I'll address it.
0: Sure. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to say you were thinking about this, Mark Marin, but I'm well, I, interested to hear
1: what your reading was of it, and then maybe I can speak to
0: it a little bit. The idea that you have gotten. I, the word happier is too simple, but you you, found, you find life more livable when you confront what you can control, what you can't. I mean, I guess that's a serenity of prayer, ultimately, sure. isn't it? But the idea that you have been your least happy when you have thought you can control everything. Is that is that sure. right? I mean, I, I, I think that,
1: you know, that if I had more discipline or, or a little more distance that, and certainly in the TV show, you see this a little too, you know, that I'm a guy that, you know, that that tries it his way and keeps pushing and pushing until he becomes just this comedy of errors, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to some, somewhat of a tragic degree in the book, but comedic, but, you know, to think that, you know, to really commit to your way, uh, just by instinct or impulse or, or, or habit, and then, you know, have that way break down over and over again, Mm -hmm. you know, at some point, you know, either you're going to get the humility necessary to change, or to see yourself, uh, you know, more honestly, mm. or you're just going to become this, you know, this, this, hor- you know, this horrible, uh, you know, crazy person who just keeps repeating this thing, mm. you know, even though it's beating the hell out of him.
0: Mm.
1: I think there's a lot about, like, you know, what you see here is that, you know, I think that a lot of the emotions and a lot of the things that I go through, you know, probably should have been resolved, you know, before I was 10 years old. Mm. That you know, there there's an expectation for people to take care of me no matter what. Uh there is a defiance to it that I think is emotionally infantile. Uh and I think that a lot of that has to do with the way I was brought up by very self involved parents. I think what you're seeing in the book and in my life is that, you know, I, I finally just took the hit of of like knowing that, you know, you can't always get what you want. Mm. You don't have control over most things. Uh, you know, you know, life is disappointing. Uh, and, and that's it. And that, you know, you have to accept certain things the way that they are, mm. no matter how upset it makes you. <laughs> and you can sit there and stomp and stomp your feet and rage and, you know, scream and yell. Mm. But, you know, as a 45-year-old person or a 50-year-old person, you know, that's not as tolerable or even as
0: charming as when a 5-year-old does it. Mm. <laughs> and even then... Uh, that a character learning that, I mean, a person, a man learning that, it gives you a pretty ideal character to work with for a show like Marin, right? I mean, right. And that's I, a-
1: again, I wish I had enough detachment to see myself as a character. That story, that sort of hasn't happened quite thoroughly. Right. I mean, all this stuff was very urgent to me. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff I wrote in the book, mm-hmm. and you know, I think if I, you know, I'm on the cusp of having enough distance to see myself as a caricature. Mm. But even in the, in the TV show, you know, I did 10 episodes. I'd never had the opportunity to, to act or write or do any of that stuff in television. I've had deals and whatnot, Mm. and I really didn't think any of that stuff was going to happen for me. And it did, but I think I was really just showing up and trying to honor myself as best as possible. Mm. Now, I think if we got another season and really sat down with it, and I had some conversations with, with people that, you know, aren't sucked into my world or, or, or or who I, trust mm. to say like, well, this is the character you are. Because mm. I don't see myself that way. Mm. You know, I don't have as uh, enough creative control or distance to say like, well, I can write for me. Yeah. I still can't do that. Mm. Uh, I'd like to, but I think that's one of the reasons why I'm compelling and also one of the reasons why I'm not more consistent mm. is that, you know, it's all very immediate and very life and death for me. And, I, you know, there's a lot of emotional risk for me in anything I do still. I still require, my needs need to be met mm. as opposed to. You know, I'm going to entertain people, uh, you know, for some reason in, with me, it's sort of like, well, I need to I need to feel good. Yes. So so hopefully, you, you, you know, we'll get another season and, you know, we can really say, well, look, this is why you're funny here. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I never thought of that. So let's do more of that.
0: I mean, but even now, seeing the episodes of Marin produced and I was watching a few of them myself, do you do you think of yourself as playing? Mark Maron on the show, I mean, is this we, there were a lot of old shows you know old sitcoms where comedians would play the the versions of themselves with their first name but a different last name you know it's how how where are you on that spectrum between just being yourself and being mark whomever even though it's it's it seems like it's you how much is it a fictionalized you Well,
1: it's fictionalizing a lot of the stories had to be sort of expanded and 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 manufactured, but you know they're all based on you know some events in my life, and I think I just kind of rode those out because that was the way I knew how to do things. Um, I think that, you know, the character is obviously going to be more limited than I am. You know, you're dealing with 22 minute episodes that have to have stories and engage with other people. But I think it's a good question to, to figure out, you know, what nuances of, of me that I didn't really use Mm -hmm. and, you know, and how can we use those to comedic effect? I don't know that those discussions were had Mm -hmm. because I don't know if any of us really knew exactly what that was. I mean, obviously the writers I was working with, you know, knew my life and I had these stories, but, you know, I've always had a fairly broad personality and I was always a little too raw and a little too real to sort of, you know, pigeonhole, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that a little bit of pigeonholing wouldn't be bad, uh, would be bad to, you know, sort of move forward, you know, as a comedic personality, you know, what, what are the things that I do naturally, uh, that are funny and, and, and moving and, and, you know, and how do we sort of rein those in a little bit and control them a little more.
0: In, in the first episode of Marin, you, you, you in the, in the show noticed you're getting heckled on Twitter yeah. by uh, the, the dragon master. Right. Uh, is that how drawn from life is that? I, I know that Twitter has been a source of, of good and good and bad for you. Is yeah. that, would you call it that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm
1: I'm very, you know, kind of, it's the most, you know, my my relationship with Twitter is probably the, the second most present relationship in my life. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that happened. It happened in a different way. I was, you know, being attacked on a blog and, you know, through a weird series of investigative work, you know, uh, that was very much like the show. I tracked this guy down oh my. on Facebook.
0: What did you want to say to him?
1: Not sure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, like what I wanted to say was like, if you're going to attack me, you know, don't, don't you know, use context. Don't you know, take apart my jokes and fragment them and, you know, misrepresent me, mm-hmm. you know, and use my work to do that. But I think ultimately I was sort of like in, uh, reaching out to figure out like, how can you be so mad at me? You know, wh- how am I being misunderstood? It was more Why aren't about- you just ignoring me? Well, not even that. Why don't you like me?
0: Oh, i see. You know, I, I don't want to be ignored. Right. No one does. But I mean, there's a sense in which you could think to yourself, my work made this guy do an impassioned thing. Sure. It's attacking me on a blog. It's a more
1: mature uh, thing. And you know, a lot of, as you get older and as you get more... Adapted to social networking and and dealing with these platforms, you realize that some people just want to connect. They just want to poke you, right. and they want to be mean, and they want to get a rise out of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I I, I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I, I'm as much of a troll as anybody else <laughs> in certain respects. But we live in a troll culture, which is sort of predatory. But mm-hmm. at some point, you know, I have to be able to say, well, this is what I do. And you know, it, you know, Louis CK said to me recently in really having this discussion with him about. How you react to that type of attack or any type of attack is that, and you know, he said, look, you know, we create something and it's a one-sided conversation. You put it out there and that's, you're, you're part of it. It's done. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you're probably better off not, you know, continuing or engaging in the conversation, mm-hmm. you know, around, you know, uh, the attacks, mm-hmm. But it hasn't been that bad but yeah but it's all very personal to me it hurts my feelings and and you know and, and again i want to know why people don't like him. But i went back and forth with that guy for like a year
0: how much humanity did you find within him by the end of that process he had his own
1: problems and nice. he was going through a hard time and you know, i think that you know he eventually said look you know i obviously you know you represented something in myself that i was having a hard time with and this mm-hmm. and that but you know but then like you know I, you know um it never really he was never that contrite mm. uh I, I wouldn't say that he likes me still but you know to have that much rage and to, you know to continue that dynamic that we were doing indicates something I mean I just got into something with Michael Ian Black mm. on Twitter yesterday that you know all these different outlets picked up on these content feeders oh, and uh you know for me like Michael Ian Black and I have a contentious relationship but We don't hate each other, but it's just the way we interact with each other. We're professional entertainers. And, you know, and and it's just been this way with us for years, for like two decades. And we just did it on Twitter. And it was everyone's like, oh my God, what's happening? And and, and I was baffled Hmm. by the attention uh, that people were, is this real? What is it? I'm like, not really. I guess it's real, but what's the big deal? You know, and he emailed me, he's like, what's, you know, we emailed each other. I'm like, "What? What's going on?" What's it? He's like, "I don't know. Just let it be." And I'm like, "Okay."
0: <laughs> that, but with it, with the, with a lower profile Twitter heckler, you know, you, you quote him as saying, "You you showed me something within myself, or you brought something out within himself that he didn't like." And I wonder, you know, reading especially the book, the new book, I I got to thinking two things about your perspective. N- number one, that you can read this book. And think Mark Marin has had so many problems in life that this is this is interesting because his problems have been extreme. Uh, I can't relate to them maybe, but they' th- that's fascinating. Number two, wait, I can relate to all his problems at once you're totally relatable and unrelatable both in both in interesting ways. Does, does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah hmm. it makes very good sense. I mean like look my problems are not. Extreme, Mm -hmm. You know, my struggles were, you know, primarily emotional. You know, I wasn't beaten. I wasn't sexually abused. I don't have cancer. You know, uh, I didn't grow up in a country with nothing. I was never imprisoned. I mean, uh, you know, I had, you know, sort of, you know, kind of garden variety drug problems. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I was poorly parented. And I chose a profession that, you, you know, is a very crazy thing. And 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 I have problems with relationships because of these things, emotional issues. But no, I I think that what you're saying is that how can I be so specific uh, in terms of drawing from the life I live, which is very specific, yet still kind of resonate? It's because I I think that a certain type of person that is not I don't know if it's a majority of people, and I don't know that I that I need that, but I I think there are people that are. Like-minded, you, you know, that there's a sensitivity and uh, a feeling of isolation and aggravation and, mm-hmm. and a feeling of being gypped or, or, or a feeling of frustration that, you know, more people don't pay attention to you or that you're not realizing your creative potential. And, and, and the, the issues that I have are common with a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that type of person is not the type of person that would say, quit whining come on man up i'm not that guy (laughs) i'm the other guy like i'm the guy that's sort of like i don't know i don't feel comfortable i got problems and this seems wrong and you you know what i mean it's like can we talk about them
0: you you do try to get to the core of your own motivations and i wonder if you follow there's a rule i've heard about personal storytelling which is that Reveal all about yourself, sure. But when it comes to the actions of somebody else in your stories, never speculate on their motivations. Report only their actions. Seems like you adhere to that. Do you you think you do?
1: Yeah, because it's tricky. Because, you know, specifically with my father, and I think my ex-wives, you know, there's the argument, like, I talked to David Sedaris the other day, you know, and, and he said, you know, I asked him about how he represents his family and he said he would never do anything that would embarrass them. No. And I don't know that I adhere to that. Because um, I didn't. Because, you know, my father and I aren't speaking now ah. because of this. But I knew that this would be... book? Yeah. Oh. And the show. But I knew that would be a risk. Mm. and But, you know, yet the, the, the reason why we're not speaking, the things that, you know, he's upset about me uh, in terms of what I revealed about him... Mm were are essential in you know creating the person that I am mm. for better and for worse but mostly for worse so how is that not part of my story mm. but in terms of speculating actions yeah i mean i think that the story about the the one in my grandfather's mouth i i could not even begin to fathom why you know what happened in that story happened <laughs> and but but yet yet, yet that mystery was in and of itself provocative mm. um you know i i i do think that what when i talk about the you know what other people might have been thinking or it's usually about like the, what what his actions did to me mm. do you, you know what i mean and if i do speculate it's usually uh for comedic
0: effect right and, and in the book he almost appears as a, your father appears like this is this is the core of one bad part of my personality, the the attention demanding core, the crazy yeah. core, almost like he's not a person, but a representation of what you don't want to be.
1: Well, isn't that all of us with their fathers, usually, unless they're good? I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, after a certain age, you know, you can't expect anything different from them, but you can, you know, you know, seek some justice within yourself mm-hmm. about, you know, whatever Emotional injustice was, you know, reaped upon you. And at a time where, you know, you couldn't fight your own fight. So, you know, I, in the book, I think, you know, I pay a little lip service to the fact that, you know, the good things about him is that, you know, he has a sort of energy and charisma and, you know, a lot of fight in him. And, you know, and he's very engaged. But the downside of that was, you know, sort of pathological narcissism and selfishness and, and, you know, emotionally abusive uh, behavior, you know, was, uh, that's the other side of that coin. And those things, you know, really have crippled me. So, and, and, and I, I, I'm not necessarily blaming him, but I think people say that as a disclaimer, I don't know that it's wrong to blame your parents. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, after a certain age, you're going to have to just accept it and take responsibility for, for whatever you've got to fix. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you you know, but the, the depth of, of that rage, once you identify it or that sadness of being, shortchanged like that emotionally or, 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 literally obliterated emotionally by your parents' needs or, or irresponsibility is really, it, it has to be a, a fairly, you know, large part of the engine of most people. I mean, if you are fortunate enough to, to have, you know, emotionally responsible and, and decent parents, then, you know, good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, you may be the majority, but I doubt it. <laughs> You know, there's a sort of some kind of reconciling you're going to have to do within yourself to, mm-hmm. to kind of let them off the hook, mm-hmm. and I think that, that that this was somewhat of an act of of that, but and also an act of just saying, you know, like if you if you're not going to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to present yourself to the world, you know, I'm speaking to my father right. in this way, yet those of us who are directly emotionally connected to you had to suffer all this other crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's almost sort of like you know you want to break through the lie right. and and kind of put it in their face because most people who are abusive or 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 aggravated or or you know nuts you know, they just don't see themselves that way. Right. Or, or or if they do, they're sort of like, yeah, but that was uh, yesterday. Crazy people don't know. Right. Well, they know, but they're sort of like, why are you getting worked up? I'm not, I'm not worked up about that anymore.
0: <laughs> it's last week. Exactly. <laughs> Can you ever fall back on the, they did the best they could, or do you know they didn't do the best they could?
1: Well, no, I, I'm very, I'm a real proponent of not accepting that. Right. I I mean, you know, because it, it's a cop out.
0: Right.
1: I, I think that we're. Contrition is, is necessary. It should be offered mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that is sort of the fallout of, you know, being emotionally hobbled, you know, by whatever they did or didn't do. Uh, you get to a certain point where you want to bring that up with them, mm-hmm. you know, usually when you're old enough to handle what's going to come back at you. Mm-hmm. And you say, look, you know, I, I, I got these problems and, you know, they're, they're clearly because of this. And they're like, well, we did the best we could. And, and then there's, you really got to say, like, did you? I mean, I mean, let's be honest. You didn't have any clue. You winged it. You know, you did what you had to do. Uh, but I don't know that you did put much thought into it. I don't know that if you, you, you know, uh, and that might be an individual problem. But I, I think that that is one of the larger cultural cop outs of, uh, you know, I don't, I, yeah, of parents in general.
0: Thinking to your own stories on, on yourself, stories about yourself, do you, are you ever tempted to arrive at the conclusion, I did the best I could?
1: Well, i say, oh, yeah. Well, I think we do what we do mm-hmm. in order to get by. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you pick a series of, of habits or things, you, you find, you know, whether... You find these weird cycles of behavior mm-hmm. that, that function... And it's not until you realize that you've done damage to yourself or to others, you know, and some people never realize it. They never realize, like, you know, like I keep doing the same, I'm, I'm walking around the same block mm. and I don't know why now I'm alone or like why everyone's moved out of mm. the, of the block.
0: I'm doing the same thing I always have. Yeah.
1: yeah what, what's wrong with everybody else? Oh, yes. So, you know. But that's a good question. Is that, you know, did I do the best I could with what I had? So, you know, so then if you phrase it like that, okay, I did the best I could with what I had. So your parents said, I did the best, we did the best we could with with what we had. Mm-hmm. But the, is there still not some onus on, you know, well, how could you not know that it's not right to, to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, did you, you know, did you look at other parents? Did you do, and, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, when I was really screwed up and, Having a lot of trouble, that you know, it's stubbornness mm. and you know, and it's pride. And these are, you know, and, and yeah, it's weird. I'm not a religious person and certainly not of this ilk, but you know, you really look if you look at the seven deadly sins, you know, that, that's a, an interesting list. Mm, yes. And the very. reason, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's very specific. Yeah, but someone said, like, these things, you know, we all got them, mm. but if you let them, yeah, any one of them, you know, or all of them, or, or three of them, or two of them. If any of them sort of get out of your, you know, if they start to take on their own life, you know, things are going to go down. Yeah. You know, things are going to start to to crumble. Yeah. And you know, it's not a bad template. You, you know, pride is a very difficult bit of business yeah. uh, in terms of what it, how it becomes malignant to, yeah. to yourself and others. So yeah, you can say best, you best. Know, yeah, I did the best I could at that time. You know well, how much of that is pride talking.
0: <laughs> Finally, we, we alluded to the, the bleakest point you, you reached when you began. WTF? Yeah. Now, I've mentioned the Mark Marin Renaissance. You know, somebody asked David Bowie in the seventies, "What does it feel like to be such a success?" He said, "Success feels like sitting in the passenger seat of a fast car. The driver is pressing down on the on the accelerator. You don't know whether you like it or not, but the car is going faster, and you're not driving." Does that, does it, is that success? Is that what it feels like? What's success feel like?
1: Well, well no, I can see that, but you know, the, you know, obviously uh, I'm nothing you know, compared to David Bowie, but you know, w- my experience is, is that, you know, eventually, you know, the guy's going to pull the car over and get out mm-hmm. and then you're going to be sitting there going like, is this, is anyone going to drive this? <laughs> You know, you're so, not, not going to move over. You're yeah, just waiting no, for the I next mean, driver. Yeah, I, I guess. Well, you left the keys in, <laughs> uh, but I don't even know what road we're supposed to take anymore. So there's always that possibility mm-hmm. that the driver will pull over and <laughs> and not leave you with a map. Right, but he could run into a wall too, as you well know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look. You know, I'm very busy, and you know, my life hasn't changed dramatically, other than you know, I'm here talking to you. Um, you know, I, I really, for me, like you know, I'm still at home. I'm still you know there's it, my house is is messy you know I need to clean my garage you know i I, you know, I got to do an interview tomorrow yes. uh, you know I got to do some stand up I got to write some new stand up but like you know but you know I, I, I i'm happy to be relevant to the people that i 'm relevant to because i've worked very hard uh to put myself out there and to and to have it resonate and and the way it's resonating with people is above and beyond what I could have expected you know i'm not you know i'm not some sort of like huge comic or you know i'm not selling out uh, radio city or anything like that but the type of response that comes from the conversations i've had and the stand up i've done or the book i've written you know the type of emails i get you know from people saying like you know you really got me through a bad time or mm-hmm. you helped me out or i never thought about it like that and you know you really i mean i got an email about this book recently mm-hmm. specifically about the uh, the porn stuff and the yes. viagra stuff in there of a guy that was like, you know, like, you know, I just never really framed it like that. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I've got work to do. Wow. So in that way that, you know, these kind of the, the this type of, 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 of effect that I'm having on people in these very unique ways is very, is very gratifying. So, you know, that is a real success to me. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, I don't know whether the, the TV show is going to be picked up or whether people are going to buy the book or, or any of that. That's, you know, those are, those, those are, um, out of my control. And also, you know, those are decisions based on commerce, you you know, but, you know, ultimately as an artist or as a performer, as whatever the hell it is, I am, you know, and certainly at my age, when, well, you know, you, okay, so we've got this wave going. It's like, well, you know, I don't need it. I don't mind if the car slows down as long as I'm still in the car. So <laughs> if we could, you know, I, I'd like to keep working and I'd and i and I'd like to not die broke and, you know, sure. and I'd like to have health insurance. Right. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, yeah, the, those are the practical things.
0: And if the occasional Twitter heckler comes along, so be it.
1: Yeah, but that guy can bring you down. You got to be careful. <laughs> You're only one tweet
0: away from, you know, completely
1: destroying yourself
0: a sober lesson from mark maron comedian podcaster writer the new book is attempting normal the second book by the way pick up his first one as well and the television show is maron on the independent film channel the podcast is wtf mark thanks so much for sitting down
1: great talk thank you
0: this has been the los angeles review of books podcast i've been colin marshall find much more at la review of thanks